Last week was more um, foundational. Tonight is what the Puritans used to call casuistry. Anybody know what that is? Um, It's what's called cases of conscience. Puritans had this way of trying to think biblically about all of life. Um, They weren't actually bad people in in lots of ways. I don't know if you know much about them. Maybe we'll do a convo on that sometime. Um, But one of the things that they liked to do is they would get together... Um, a group of preachers would get together and they would invite the people from their churches to come and sit in on this. And they would basically propose all these different kinds of ethical dilemmas and questions. And then um, they would assign you know, a particular preacher, you'll have to preach a sermon on this. Like, is it lawful to marry your sister's um, sister? You know, or is it uh, appropriate to um, disobey your parents if they want you to be married to this person and they arrange this marriage. All those kinds of things. They, they wanted to think about all those sorts of things, so they would do it with these cases of conscience. As I was thinking about this message tonight, I was thinking, uh, that's really what this feels like. A bunch of random kind of questions related to dating and thinking about dating, which I hope demonstrate a little bit about trying to think biblically how, how scripture and various principles of scripture come to bear on the kinds of questions that we have. That's actually an important thing to do. Yes, Bradley. Do we have an outline? For this week, yes. As soon as we're not confused about which one is going out, I will give you one for this week. Are we ready for that now? Last week has now been dispersed. All right, here's this week's outline. Casuistry about dating. Cases of conscience. Random thoughts and questions, whatever you want to call it, um, thoughts on gospel-driven dating. What we've really been about this semester is trying to connect the truth of the good news of the gospel, that what God has done in Jesus, coming to live and die in the place of sinners, reconciling them to himself, not because of anything they've done, but because solely of his grace and mercy. How does that impact the relationships we have with other people? Okay? And so when we come and we look at dating, what I, one of the points I made last week was we're not talking about all new kinds of rules. That the same kinds of principles that apply to your other relationships, being a faithful person, being somebody who is quick to forgive, being somebody who loves enough to actually get in somebody's face when they need it, all of these things should carry over into the way you think about relationships with the opposite sex. Um, Let me pray for us, and then we will dive into this topic. Lord, we do pray that you would help us tonight to think biblically about dating and about this particular kind of relationship. We pray that you would give us wisdom, give us guidance, help us to hear. Most of all, help us to reverence and honor you with all of our lives and every aspect of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, A couple things from last week, if you weren't here, and if you were, just to review. I said that the purpose of dating is not merely to get married. The purpose of dating is to be a blessing and to be blessed. The reason that's important is because if you think the only purpose, the only validation for dating or ever doing anything with somebody of the opposite sex is to find out if you could get married to them, it puts incredible pressure where there doesn't need to be pressure. You end up with this catch-22, which is, is, is such a problem, I think. You feel like, I would never date anybody unless I was sure that I would marry them. But how are, will I ever get to know if I would marry them because I actually don't really know them, right? Now, it other, also does this. If you've ever been in a relationship with somebody and then it ends, even for good reasons, if you think the purpose of dating is to get married, you have to conclude that that relationship was a failure, 
I don't think you need to do that. I think if you rightly define the purpose of dating as being blessed and being a blessing, in other words, just as the purpose of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that's the purpose of everything that human beings do, including the way they relate to one another. Okay, So you are to think in terms of how can I be blessed and be a blessing in my relationships with all people. That's what we should be thinking about. So that was the first. The second is, one of the things that complicates this purpose is um, fear. Fear drives us so much more than we want to admit. And so we talked last week about what does God do about our fear. And uh, you can listen to the podcast RUF Belmont, or I think it's Belmont RUF. You can search on iTunes under podcasts. You can find that. Uh, You've got the little outline there. The the last thing we talked about last week was about the problem with most Christian books on dating. And I forgot to bring one that I had with me. I showed it to some of you guys. Um, What what was it called? Um, How to Be a Winner and Pick a Winner. (laughs) From 1987. But unfortunately, a lot of the advice doesn't really change in these books. But the simpleton approach to the Christian life, you've got to see the picture on the cover. It's what really makes the book. I'll, I promise I'll bring it next week. Um, but, the, the, you know, the, um, this approach, this simpleton approach is basically this. If I could just figure out the right things to do and then do them, then my life would work better. And so I, I talked about a book called Choosing God's Best that basically promotes this kind of idea that if you would just quit dating and just do courtship, which is God's way of finding a mate, then everything will work out fine and you won't have any problems like the kinds of problems that are associated with dating, right? And we kind of made fun of that a little bit, that approach to thinking that the Christian life can be reduced to simple little rules and 10 steps how to have a better marriage or 10 steps on how to be a better husband. Not that the Christian teaching should not be practical, but it's not reducible to those sort of little rules. And a lot of people treat the Bible that way. Do you realize that in the book of the Proverbs, which is really one of the places where people most try to apply this approach, just tell me the little rules for Christian living. In the book of the Proverbs, there are actually back-to-back two verses, one of which says, answer a fool according to his folly. The other one, right next to it, says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. So the question is, if you think the way to understand the Bible is to figure out the little rules and then apply them in your life, what are you going to do when you're confronted with a fool? Will you answer him according to his folly or will you not answer him according to to his folly? Now, listen, the Proverbs, the people that put the Proverbs together knew that they were next to each other. The point is, you shouldn't read the book of Proverbs as a simple little book of rules. You should realize that you need wisdom and you need to cry out to God for wisdom to know how to live a godly life in this world. It's not easy. It's not easy. And if you need more convincing, well, then the book of Job is there for you as well to help you understand that even if you do the right things, sometimes life is really difficult. And God is not a vending machine where you put in the certain things that you think you're supposed to do and you get this predictable, manageable result. You're in a relationship, Christianity says, with God who is a personal being. Francis Schaeffer, who is a very influential man in the Christian world in the 20th century, said that the most important thing that people in the 20th century need to know about God is that God is not a mechanical God and that he doesn't relate to us in a mechanical way. And the, people, the reason that so many people need to know that is because the church has really been confused about that. 
right? We would love, especially in America, to turn everything into nice, neat little formulas. So I hope that that's not what I'm doing tonight. And I hope that as I go through some of these things, you'll realize, well, he didn't really tell me what to do there. There are some of these situations where I can't tell you what to do because the Bible doesn't tell you what to do. But the Bible tells you you should always love. You should always consider others more important than yourself. You should forgive. You should honor God with your body. All kinds of principles that bear upon these questions tonight. So here we go. The first thing to understand is when the Bible talks about becoming one flesh with somebody, which it does back in Genesis when it talks about marriage, and we're going to talk about marriage uh, next week or the week after. We still have to do marriage and then life as a single person. Those are the last two talks I'm going to give in this series. Um, When it talks about that one flesh relationship, it means a whole lot more than just having sex. What that means is when you think about dating and you think about marriage you should remember that friendship is primary. That God created Eve to be a helpmate. And by implication, Adam, to be a helpmate. To be a partner, to be a life companion, to be about the work of taking all that God had created with God-glorifying potential in this world and to bring it to fruition, to extend the kingdom of God. And so when you're thinking about the kind of people that you want to be with and you may even want to spend your life with, for goodness sake, understand that friendship is primary. Tim Keller talks about this. He's a pastor up in New York. He says, you know, most of us, when we walk into a room, we automatically reject 90% of the people of the opposite sex as potential dating partners because of what they look like before we've ever got to know them. And what that shows is that we've misunderstood the primary the primary aspect of a marital relationship. Who can you grow old with and spend the next 50 years of your life with? It's always fascinating to me how many times people and how deeply rooted we are to this idea that we're going to meet somebody and just know in an instant that this is the person, this is my soulmate. And as many times as you think you found that person and then they break your heart, we still don't lose our hope that we're still going to find that kind of person. Relationships generally don't work that way. And if they do, they generally don't last. So, friendship is primary. And you need to remember that when we're thinking about the kind of people that we want to be with. It also helps, again, if you understand that it's appropriate for you to spend time with somebody of the opposite sex to be a blessing and to be blessed. You may not actually think, "Ah, right now, I don't know, I, I, I like this person. Listen, when I asked my wife out on a date... She wasn't interested in me in the least. All I had going for me was she respected me. But I could work with that. (laughs) You know? (laughs) That's all I had, right? And so, you know, I took her out a couple times, and then I sat her down, and I said, I guess you, you probably wonder what my intentions are. And she said, yeah, that would be good. Now, I didn't do this to control her. I actually did it because I was the only single pastor at a church of, like, 3,000 people, where the, the senior pastor regularly would say things like, pray for Kevin to get a wife from the pulpit. At my ordination service, one of the elders, if you go to City Church, you know him, Rick Punkashar, he stood up and he invited all the single women to come to the front to meet me after the ordination service, all right? So I knew that when I asked Wendy Morgan out, word was going to get out, and everybody was going to be wondering, what's up, and be asking her. And I felt that I needed to take the lead in giving her an answer for that question. So I took her out a couple times, like a Friday, maybe a 
I guess it was like a Friday and then a Saturday or a Sunday. And then Monday night, after we had a, a, a meeting at church, I took her out and I sat her down. And I said, um, here's my intentions. I'm going to pursue you until you tell me to stop. Are you okay with that? And she was like, uh, I've never th- like thought about that. I've never thought of you in that way. But I think you're a good guy. And so I guess I'm open to that, right? Okay. Uh, you know? I, all she knew was that we could be friends. And then we'll see where it goes from there. All right. Second, and, and this actually applies to the story I just tell you, it's important to talk through weirdness. Dating is always going to be weird. Relating to people of the opposite sex with all these expectations and hopes and dreams and fears is always going to be weird. And listen, there's always two interpretations to every event. One of the things that just breaks my heart is how people try to read each other without actually ever talking. So, for instance, you know, and I played these games because I didn't ask Wendy out until I was in my early 30s, right? I'd played these games a lot. Oh, I wonder, I wonder, you know, I, I asked somebody out for lunch maybe, and then, you know, she'd be wondering, okay, if, if, I, if I didn't call her the next day, am I supposed to call her the next day? Am I supposed to call her that night? Uh, I don't know. If I call her the next day, she might think that I'm, like, coming on way too strong. So maybe I'll wait two days. Meanwhile, she's thinking, well, I guess he's not really interested or he's rude or he's completely inconsiderate or he's not thinking about me at all because he hadn't called me in two days. There's always two interpretations to the fact that I didn't call for two days. I meant, I meant to communicate, I really, really like you, and I don't want to screw this up. That isn't what I communicated, right? And there's no way to fix that unless we actually talk, Right? So you've got to talk through weirdness. Listen, you won't die. <laughs> you won't die. This is like what I, why I talked about fear first. This is why I talked about fear first. If Jesus lived and died in your place, if God will never leave you or forsake you, then you can talk through weirdness. And you might have awkward silence. You might actually say something that you didn't mean to say. I don't know what will happen. You don't know what will happen. But just dive in. It's all right. Um, the, the fact is, neither one of us, girls or guys, are as good at picking up subtle messages as we think we are. Now, guys know that they're no good at it. Girls think they're good at it. But all I can tell you, in years and years of working with college students, the girls aren't as good at it as they think they are either. Because I'll often talk to them about what they think has been communicated, and then I'll talk to the guy and find out that they're completely missing each other. Right? So just talk through weirdness. Um, don't assume things, let things just remain confused and then drift away. And then it's completely weird and you don't know how to talk anymore, right? Um, that gets me to the next thing. This is actually the, some words of Jesus from Matthew five thirty seven. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's actually one of the most important principles in dating. As a matter of fact, there's a book, um, what's it called? Oh, John Holtzman's book, Dating with Integrity. I don't like everything in that book, but he basically builds the whole book around this, this thing. And what he says is, so often we're saying with our words something that's different than what we're saying with our actions. We're saying with our words, I don't want to date you. And yet we're acting like we're dating. In other words, you have expectations that he's going to call you up every night. And if he doesn't, you're mad. But you, you're, you say you're not dating but yet you feel like he, does, he owes you or he, you have ownership over him and his time. Or you're doing things like, um, 
you know, you're always like giving her a ride everywhere and you're taking her out to lunch, but you're not dating. But she's definitely getting mixed signals, right? So let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you want to date, great. Talk about it, do it. But, but don't just sort of like try to sort of kind of do it, have your cake and eat it too. Sort of say that, you know, I'm not really risking anything because I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm dating you, but yet you're acting like it. It's not helpful and it's not honorable. It's just not honorable. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. The point Jesus is making there is you shouldn't have to swear on other things. Your word should be good. Your character should be such that when you say something, people know that, that, that you can be trusted, right? And, of course, what is it that makes it so difficult for us to be trusted and to keep our word? Fear. Fear. <laughs> Again, the gospel has everything to say to that. The cross comes and says, what do you really have to be afraid of? You think you're going to find yourself lost and alone forever for all eternity? No. God has already died rather than live without you. So that has to impact the way you think about fear. Um, Do know this, though. Dating is a weird thing. It's sort of a commitment that's not really commitment. It's It's kind of like auditioning somebody. At the same time, you're trying to pretend that you're committed to them. And that produces a lot of weirdness, doesn't it? And it makes it actually very difficult to work out conflict. Because I will tell you, dating is not like marriage. It's not even like on the way to marriage. They're really completely different relationships. It changes everything. When you've stood before God and these witnesses and said that I will love you and be with you and be committed to you in sickness and in health and richer and poorer and good times and bad times, it means that when you go into conflict, you both have stood before God and these witnesses and said, we're not going to cut and run if we can't resolve this in the next 15 minutes. But dating, you're, sometimes you're not sure, Right? It's like you want to enter into a conflict. You need to have a conflict about something, but you're not sure. Will this be the thing that's sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? So I suggest, and this is, again, this is just a suggestion, and, and I've, I've told this to some dating couples, and I think it's a, a good advice. It would be nice, I think, if, and I'm not talking about if you went out on one or two dates, but I'm talking about if you're dating, that you would covenant together, covenant together, and say, we promise that we are not going to break up in the midst of a fight. That if we're going to end this, we're going to end it after we've had time to think and reflect, ask advice maybe of older couples that we know, that we're not just going to, in the heat of the moment, just make a rash decision and have the whole thing come crumbling down. I think that would be helpful, and I think it would actually help you do conflict better to know that there's a little bit of a safety net there. That if you say something... I mean, David Brooks in his book, Bobos in Paradise, says that, that for people today, life is a continual aptitude test. He says that, you know, in the 50s, before, before the 50s, I guess, the way you got into the elite schools, the elite colleges, was through your family connections. You had to have, you know, a father or a grandfather went to Harvard to get into Harvard. But in the 50s, all those schools really changed 
their entrance requirements. No longer did family connections matter nearly as much as your grade point average, your activities. It, well, it's the way you guys got into college, okay? And one of the things that that did was it, it really shifted our whole society into what David Brooks calls a meritocracy, that you basically are only as good as what you can contribute and what you can bring. And so he says life is a continual aptitude test. And dating can be that way. And it's really difficult because it's this continual aptitude test where if I say the wrong thing, ah, it's, all, it's all done. It's all over. It'd be like going into work and knowing that if you said run wrong word, you'd be fired on the spot. It's really hard to actually be yourself in those kind of situations, isn't it? So I, I take that for what it's worth. But I think that actually would be good if you really are dating seriously to think in terms of what kind of, what kind of things can we break up over by mutual agreement and not just do it um, with an argument that just spirals out of control where we both really become insane and we need to have a day to think about it and sleep on it before we come back to this issue, okay? Um, if you do break up, if you do break up, I implore you to remember that it's hard on your friends. It's hard on your community. And it's difficult, I know, in the midst of the pain and or the guilt to think about people other than yourself. But it really is important that you do that. It really is important Um, that you honor God in the way you talk and act toward the person you used to date. It's really important that if you find yourself in a position of counseling or comforting somebody who's been broken up with or has done the breaking up, that you don't just sort of be the rah-rah person that makes them think that everything they did was right and everything the other person did was wrong. That doesn't help anybody or anything. That you don't sort of be like their cheerleading squad that just, you know, basically wants to help them feel powerful again rather than helping them run to Jesus, right? So understand that just like when I do weddings and when I preach sermons at weddings, I always say that marriage is for more than just two. Marriage is for more than just two. It, it impacts a whole community. And so does dating relationships, in good and bad ways. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, it, it's something that, that we need to think about as well. Um, now, I, I talked about, you know, talking through weirdness, but, but here's sort of a, a caveat to that. Beware of too many DTR talks. You know what I mean by DTR talks? Define the relationship talks, okay? This is one of the ways, I think, that we inappropriately deal with our fear. Um, we're constantly wanting to assess how is the relationship today? How is it this hour? How is it next hour, right? And all I can tell you is the quickest way to fall out of love with somebody is to focus on the relationship rather than on the person. And it's like that with Jesus as well. Um, One of my favorite quotes is from this old guy, William Romaine. He lived back in the 1700s. And uh, I put this quote on here. Look at this. This is beautiful. He was writing to a friend of his, who was feeling very discouraged in his faith. And I love this, and I I think that we do this all the time um, in the spiritual life in our relationship with Christ, and then I think we do it as well uh, in our relationships with other people. Listen to what Romaine says. He says, 
here's your problem, why you're so discouraged. You're looking not at the object of your faith, at Jesus, but at your faith. You would draw your comfort not from him, but from your faith. And because your faith is not quite perfect, you are as much discouraged as if Jesus was not quite a perfect savior. But besides this mistake, I can see one of the greatest sins in your way of reasoning, and yet finally cloaked under a very spacious covering. I pulled it off, and behold, there was rank treason under it, against the crown and majesty of my Lord and God. For you are kept looking at your act of believing. What is this for? Why, certainly, that you may be satisfied with it. And what then? No doubt you will then rest in it and upon it, Satisfied now that Christ is yours because you are satisfied with your faith. This is making a Jesus of it. You're making a Jesus of your faith. And it is, in effect, taking the crown of crowns from his head and placing it upon the head of your faith. Lord, grant you may never do this anymore. If you grew up in churches where basically unless you can tell somebody your testimony and the day and the hour when you were saved or you didn't have any right to believe you were a Christian, that's what that sort of tradition teaches you to be always looking at your faith and your act of believing rather than looking at Jesus. And it's no wonder that, you know, people like me who in that situation, I would pray every single night because I wasn't sure that it took, right? Do you understand this? If you're always looking at the relationship, of course you're going to find cracks in it. You're in a relationship with another sinner, right? Of course you're going to get discouraged. And no relationship can last constant DTR talks. Because usually DTR talks are an opportunity for two insecure, scared people to sort of give voice to their fears, hoping that the other person will say something that will make them more comfortable in the weirdness of dating. And it never works. And then you want to do it again, right? So don't, don't do that. Trust in Jesus and be a man, be a woman, right? All right. What about God's will? It was interesting. I asked some of the students, what do you want me to hit on if I'm going to talk about dating? And some of the guys said, how about this idea when somebody says, I just really don't think it's God's will that I date right now or that I date you. And it's funny, like you guys have all heard this, right? Right. Listen, don't be very careful the way you invoke God's will. For one thing, if you've ever said that to somebody, you definitely need to come to my convo on God's will, on knowing God's will. Because most Christians are so screwed up in the way they think about knowing God's will. Um, So far from the Bible. They think of God as somebody who's hiding his will and we need to figure out all these little techniques to figure it out. But all I can tell you is that's what Baal is like. That's what all the pagan gods are like. But the God of the Bible is the God who reveals himself and delights to do so. And he hasn't hidden his will out there for like a little game for us to find it. When we think about it that way, it may seem like it's no big deal. It may seem like a little error, but it actually brings dishonor upon who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. It's a very big deal that these mistakes we make about knowing God's will. And you must be very careful. If the Bible doesn't say it, then you better be very careful if you say it's God's will to do this or to do that. Because unless God's word says it, everything that you have to go on is conjecture. Unless you're looking back at the fact. Like I can say without a doubt, it was God's will for me to marry Wendy. But I didn't know that going into it. Right? Now, 
Does, is, is it within God's will and within God's plan who you're going to marry? Of course. Ephesians chapter 1 says that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. But it doesn't say, and he's told you what it is. So that you better make sure you stay right in the center of it. That kind of language is not in the Bible. There, 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 there are certainly things in the Bible about here's how you're to live. Flee sexual immorality. That, that's in 1 Thessalonians. That's a good example of God's will. There's lots of those sorts of things. But so often we invoke this phrase about, I just don't think it's God's will, when what we really mean is, I just don't really feel like doing this anymore. And we spiritualize it in a way that's absolutely nauseating. Right? And not only that, but it's usually dishonest. Now, hear what I'm saying. I am not saying that if you don't want to go out with somebody, that you need to tell them why. I don't think you have to. I think that if somebody asks you out and you're not interested, you don't necessarily owe them a big explanation. And guys, you better not press for that. Here's the thing. What you share with somebody is always going to be somewhat dictated by what they have a right to know and by what it's loving for you to tell them. I think Christians are, are way too apt to feel that because we need to be honest people, that therefore we have to share our hearts at the very deepest level with everybody. That's not true. You should guard your heart. Guys, you, there are girl, guys and girls both, there are things you should not tell somebody you're dating that you will share with your spouse one day, right? That's a different relationship. It's a different level of commitment. The level of commitment always, always determines the level of intimacy. And that's an important thing to remember. So, um, yeah, I, I threw a couple things in there. It connects to this next one, which is that ownership is a right enjoyed only by married couples. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. Um, he talks about how the, the husband's body is not his own but belongs to his wife and how the wife's body is not her own but belongs to the husband. Now, in Paul's day, everybody thought that the wife's body belonged to the husband, but for Paul to say that the husband's body belongs to the wife was inconceivable, and yet there it is. In other words, married couples have mutual ownership over each other, but the Bible nowhere says that about dating couples or about people um, you know, who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so one of the things that that means is you don't have ownership over the person you're dating. I don't care how long you've been dating. They should not have to submit to you. Submission is something for marriage, and we'll talk about that when we talk about marriage, what that means. I know that people sometimes freak out about that idea. We'll talk about that. But it's not an appropriate concept in dating. I do think that if you're on your way to being married, you should see sort of a natural gravitation towards, you know, can you respect this man and follow his leadership? Can you respect this, this woman and really learn from her? I mean, Paul says in Ephesians five twenty, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Whenever couples want me to read in the wedding service, you know, wives submit to your husbands, I refuse to do it unless they read the verse beforehand, which says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, because that's the heading for the whole section of the various different relationships. All right, we'll talk about that when we get to marriage. Um, guys, be men and pursue well. One of the things that that, that that means is don't make girls that you're going out with feel like they continually have to impress you 
and that they are continually being auditioned. Nothing, nothing will make them more insecure and less able to be who they are in front of you. And you'll never really figure out who they really are. Right? Now, I didn't, do, I didn't figure this out. Um, I, in other words, I figured this out in telling Wendy that I was going to pursue her until she said no. I didn't, I didn't know that that would, how helpful that would be. And I'm not necessarily advocating that. I, I, I told that story to somebody years ago, and they ended up saying that to a girl that they didn't know. Hardly at all. And um, there was all kinds of baggage from her past that she hadn't dealt with. It was a you know, very huge deal. Um, I knew Wendy, and I knew her character and whatnot when I said that to her. She wasn't just you know, somebody that I just met. But um, I, I do think that this is what, what's interesting is that about, I guess it was a month or two after we'd been dating, we went to a wedding. And that always, like if you're dating somebody and you go to a wedding, be ready to ride the emotional roller coaster. <laughs> because, guys, if you go to a wedding, the girl is going to think about you in that setting. It's inevitable, right? And she may not like that, that concept. Um, she may be freaking out. Same thing happens when you get to be a senior and you're getting ready to graduate. People begin to project, you know, what my life is going to be like, and it gets real dicey sometimes. You've got to ride the roller coaster then too. But I remember we went, went uh, you know, to, to South Carolina, and we we're, you know, the wedding was going to be that night, and we were hanging out at the beach, a bunch of us, and I said something like, I, you know, I was sitting next to Wendy on the beach, and I said something like, um, you know, I'm really enjoying getting to know you. And she got up and suddenly, like, had to take a walk down the beach. And I was like, what did I say? What did I do? I mean, her, her emotions were all over the place. She was basically feeling like, well, later that night, she, she told me, she's like, I just don't know about this because you feel so, you seem so sure and I, you've seemed like you've had a lot of time to think about this, and I'm just not there. And I said, Wendy, I am not pursuing you based upon where you are, but upon where I am. I'm pursuing you because I want to pursue you. Not, and I'm not expecting you to be at a certain place at a certain time. I, you know, I don't need that. I have Jesus. Okay? I didn't say that. That would have been a good thing to say. That's what I, but that's what I thought. <laughs> it was what I was thinking, that... that, that I'm pursuing you because I want to pursue you. And, you know, I guess it was a helpful thing to say because, like, the, you know, kind of a few minutes more into the conversation, then she said, well, let's get up early and go, you know, walk on the beach and watch the sunrise, and we're going to drive back to Nashville together. So, I, you know, I was like, oh, I guess that, that was helpful. I, I didn't plan that. I fell into that. There's something about your pursuit being not based upon the, the emotional ups and downs um, that's really helpful. And how can you do that? Well, you have, to, you have to be rooted in the fact that if she says yes or she says no, it's going to be okay because Jesus is still on the throne. Right? Therefore, I don't need to ride that emotional roller coaster with her. All right. Um, turn it over. i got a couple more, couple more thoughts. What about dating non-Christians? I don't think you should do it. Why would I say that? Now, Tim Keller, he, he ministers you know, to a church up in uh, New York City with tons of singles, um, a lot of whom have situations where you know, there's like something at work and they have to bring a date. And he makes a distinction between a date where the point is you have to go to this party, like for work, and you have to bring a date. And he would say, well, it would be okay to bring a non-Christian to that because your point is not pursuing the person as much as just having a companion to do something with. 
And he would say that would be appropriate, whereas if the point of the date, it doesn't really matter what you do. It's the point is the person that you're going with because you want to pursue them and get to know them, then maybe that's probably not appropriate. The reason, of course, is um, without a doubt, you're not supposed to marry somebody who's not a Christian if you're a Christian. Now, non-Christians often are like, well, that seems real snobbish and elitist. And it really is, it really is I think, helpful for both people, Christians and non-Christians, if you think about it. If, if marriage really is to be about becoming one flesh, what you're saying is this huge aspect of my life that I can never be one flesh with with this other person, you can't really marry the whole person if that issue is, 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 is not on the same page. You're only getting part of a person. Nobody wants that. It may seem, it may seem like an okay deal going into it, but it's not what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is supposed to be a one flesh relationship, spiritually, socially, sexually, intellectually, in all these different ways. And you're basically going into it saying, well, this huge area of my life, which actually impacts every other area of my life, we're not on the same page about that. But it doesn't really matter. No, it matters. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. A um, couple other things. When should you say I love you? Now, the Bible doesn't say this. But I think, again, it, let your words matter. Let them carry weight. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I think the first thing you should do is think about why would I want to say it? If you're saying it so that you can feel justified in going farther sexually than you should, well, that's a bad reason. If you're saying it so that you feel like maybe you can get the other person to say it to help you with your insecurity, like, you know, I'll show you yours, you show me mine. Yeah, that's... That's not an appropriate thing either, right? That's not appropriate either. <laughs> it, it, should never be, it should never be an expression of your feelings at the moment. I love you is not to be an expression of your feelings at the moment. Unfortunately, in our culture, that's what the word has become. Um, and it's interesting, you know, friends of mine, I don't ever let... Um, couples write their own vows. I haven't actually really ever found any that wanted to. Um, but for a while, it was really this in vogue thing to write your own vows. And the problem is most people, when they write vows for their weddings, they don't really write vows. They really write, here's how I feel at the moment. And how you feel at the moment is not a basis for marrying somebody, right? Vows are bigger than how you feel at the moment. And, and I think that when you say I love you, it carries a weight, and it is sort of like a vow. And the Bible does say that those should be taken very seriously. I, I, for myself, because, you know, I knew that Wendy had been in a relationship where a guy had basically told her that way too early. She thought they were going to get married, and he just didn't follow through. I knew that early on in our dating relationship, and I vowed to myself that I was not going to tell her that until I was ready to propose to her. It didn't mean I did propose to her, but I was willing to say, if I say that to her, I'm willing to marry her. I don't know. I, I mean, I thought the same thing about kissing, actually, too. That I, you know, why should I be sexually intimate with somebody unless, as far as it depends upon me, I would marry this person? But you can think about that. Um, what about praying together? Now, I have a friend that says if, if, if couples are praying together, they're probably sleeping together. I don't know if that's always true, but I, I think that this is true, that it's very difficult to build intense intimacy in one area of your relationship and not have it bleed over into other areas. 
So take that for what it's worth. Um, how should we deal with the plague of undefined hanging out that goes on? This is something. Now, what I mean by this is people that decide that they don't want to date, um, but they still want to be best friends. And here's, here's the reality, guys. If you don't marry somebody of the opposite sex who you think is your best friend, they won't be your best friend for long. Because at some point, one of you will probably get married, and then it will be absolutely inappropriate for them to be your best friend. In a lot of cases, what's really going on is people don't want to bear the consequences of the decisions they've made. If you've made a decision that you're not going to date, then you need to live like that's the decision that's been made. And you need to bear the consequences of that. I know for myself, one of the things that helped me is I realized that I was, I basically was not pursuing anybody, any girls, because I was scared to death. And yet I was basically always surrounding myself with lots of other friends and roommates so that I would be able to mask how lonely I really was. In other words, I was, I should have been bearing the consequences of incredible loneliness because I wasn't pursuing intimacy with anybody. But I was able to mask it by all of my roommates. And I finally realized that and decided that I needed to live on my own, and I got married within six months. There's something about bearing the consequences, and God has ordained consequences to attend to our, our, our decisions and our sin. And often we try to separate those things that God has joined together. So what I mean by this is if you've decided not to date and you think that you can still be best friends, I don't think you're really being honest and bearing the consequences of the decision that you've made. So, now I'm willing for you to take offense at everything I say. So, um, what, about, what about this? What should you expect in dating a Christian who's still a sinner? Well, they are a sinner. But you should see, I think, somebody who wants to run to Jesus and can help you run to Jesus. You don't need to look for somebody who's perfect, that will never say the wrong thing, that will never let you down. Jesus is the only one who can love you like that. But you want to see and you want to find someone who the Lord seems to be able to use to help you turn to the gospel rather than your fear. Somebody who seems to grow in skill in doing that and grows in courage in wanting to do that and learning how to do that better and better. Again, you know, if, if marriage is to be about not just about finding somebody that you can huddle together with on cold nights, but about actually extending God's kingdom into the world, then it's vital that the person that you're going to marry is somebody who the two of you are better than you are by yourselves in, in learning how to repent and learning how to trust Jesus. You may get along really, really well with somebody, but they may actually be the person that keeps you from needing Jesus. That wouldn't be a good thing. Right. Um, is it? This is the last question because I've, I've always thought this was interesting. Is it appropriate to break up with somebody if you think they've become an idol in your life? I've had this at times over the years. Somebody'd say, "You know, I broke up with this girl because I think she'd really become an idol in my life." To which I always say, "What are you going to do when your wife becomes an idol?" Because the Bible nowhere says that you can divorce your wife if she becomes an idol, an idol in your life. In other words, if she becomes more important to you than God. There's a, good reasons for breaking up with people, but you need to come up with a better way to deal with your idolatry than just thinking you can cut these things out of your life. That may seem like a good idea, 
But in reality, the way to deal with idolatry is not to say that good things are bad and treat them like they're bad. It is to receive them as good gifts from God and pray that you would be thankful to him and reverence him for the goodness that you get through this relationship or this person, right? Thankfulness is always the antidote to idolatry. And that's actually fleshed out pretty good in 1 Timothy chapter 4. You can look, up, look at that. Um, I think that that's, you know, that, that betrays a real misunderstanding about spirituality. But unfortunately, it's a real common one. Um, don't treat good gifts like they're bad things. There was a little boy who wrote to C.S. Lewis one time, concerned that he loved Aslan more than Jesus. And C.S. Lewis answered him back and said, it's not a problem. What you love about Aslan is Jesus coming through Aslan, right? If you feel like, wow, I just love this girl. My heart just goes pitter-patter when I'm in her presence. That's got to be a bad thing, (laughs) Because I don't feel that way when I read the Bible. No, thank God for that. You know? And thank him and reverence him and, and bless him. Right? Don't think that you need to cut everything out of your life that moves you and thrills you. Because that would be more spiritual. That's a really wrong-headed idea of spirituality. It's this idea, and I talk, try to talk about it a lot because it's way too common, that the more miserable we are, the more holy you must be. That's not what the Bible teaches. All right, that's enough. Enough little casuistry. Um, any thoughts or questions? Other, I know I hit a lot of questions, but if anybody had anything they wanted to ask, or yeah. All right. What I'm saying is, you need to pace yourself. And there's ways that you can pray for one another, and then there's ways that it's really way too intimate a thing than the the level and the commitment level of relationship or the state, that you, the status. Maybe you need to go ahead and get married. I, I don't know. But um, th- 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 that's what I'm just saying. For trying to have, um, oh, what would the word be? A, a right kind of correspondence between the, the level of commitment that you've given with your words and your commitment and what you're actually experiencing. It would be the same thing sexually. Like, if you're not really committed to somebody but you're having sex, that's inappropriate. Um, Unless you're married and you've expressed that kind of commitment, you shouldn't be having sex. And same way, if you're having sort of the spiritual intimacy that a married couple has, but you're not married, it's kind of weird and it will inevitably lead to some real tensions and difficulties. But that's hard, you know, particularly because we tend to get married so late. Too late, probably. Probably just need to get married sooner. Um, and there's probably a lot more people that you could marry than you think. You know. Again, I just say the Puritans, the Puritans married to fall in love. Now that doesn't mean they were right, but it means that Christians, good, solid Christians, have not always thought the way you think about it. And you know, they found that that worked pretty well. So uh, all I can say is. You know, you know. There's there's other ways to think about some of these things. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. That's part of the talking through weirdness I'm talking about. I, I think, and and I think you know, like when I say don't have too many DTR talks. If you're like good friends with somebody, and then like they start asking you out to coffee, after a while you're like kind of wondering what's going on. 
If you're really wondering what's going on, you have every right and, and the, certainly the freedom to ask them. Yeah? And I think that if the guy says, well, I'm just, we're just hanging out, say, that's bull. You have some intentionality. You have some purpose in this. The purpose may be, I think you're great, and I really value your friendship, and you always help me get a bigger perspective on the world, and I really need that. Okay, well, that's a purpose. It's not just hanging out. You know, I'm desperately lonely, and you're the only person that talks to me. You know, that's a purpose. There's something, right? I just think hanging out is such a cop-out as an explanation for what's going on. And so I, I don't, you know, you seem like a very sweet girl. And so I would encourage you to ask them what, what's going on, you know, not, a, not in, a, in a mean way. But listen, it's, you probably don't need to keep hanging out if they're so threatened by that question that they can't even provide some kind of answer, okay? So they're still a little boy and not, not what you need, be my opinion. Um, so I think hanging out can cover, like, it's really interesting the way people carefully parse dating, going out, hanging out, yeah, talking, okay, yeah, and uh, all this different range, and then we're Facebook official, or boyfriend and girlfriend, there are all these, it's always fascinating me, I, I kind of get a kick out of sort of asking people, like, what's the, the, the term for what you're doing this week? Um, again, just talk through weirdness, what does that mean? Um, because, again, probably you all might mean different things even by those same terms. And you can have endless discussions about what, is, what, is, what do you think that term means and what do I think that term means. Just because you use the same term, you may not even be on the same page. So talk through weirdness. That's, that's my advice. Does that help? Yeah. All right.